This episode of Astronomy Cast is brought to you by Swinburne Astronomy Online, the world's longest-running online astronomy degree program. Visit astronomy.swin.edu.au for more information. Astronomy Cast, episode 228 for Monday, April 11th, 2011. Giovanni Cassini. Welcome to Astronomy Cast, our weekly facts-based journey through the cosmos, where we help you understand not only what we know, but how we know what we know. My name is Fraser Kane. I'm the publisher of Universe Today, and with me is Dr. Pamela Gay, a professor at Southern Illinois University, Edwardsville. Hey, Pamela, how you doing? I'm doing well. How are you doing, Fraser? I'm doing really well. This is kind of cool. We are doing our first ever live hangout version of recording Astronomy Cast. So while we're doing our Astronomy Cast recording, we've actually got eight of our good astronomy friends listening in and watching us on videos we do the recording so uh so no pressure please please be kind to us that's all we ask <laughs> now we've got a, a bunch of announcements we'll get through them as quickly as we can we know you don't like them so first i was a guest on the caustic soda podcast so uh my good friend torn atkinson and team now because of weird time dilation the episode that i recorded is going to be showing up in July, but we're saying this is April 11th, but in fact, it's all, time's all wiggly, timey-wimey. So, time is just relative, that's all. Time is just relative, that's right. So, so we're moving at a faster velocity. Um, or is it a slower, uh, anyway. Uh, could you do the math, please? <laughs> no. Uh, so the next thing that's important to note is that Pamela and I are going to be doing a live episode of Astronomy Cast at DragonCon, which is the Labor Day weekend, 2011, and uh, that's going to be really fun. The, uh, oh, go to astrogear.org, buy our stuff. It's summer. You can look sexy in an astronomy t-shirt. Go, go <laughs> show off your, your non-geocentricity. Perfect. Um, I'm not wearing one today. I usually wear them. It's all I wear, actually. <laughs> <laughs> um, and then finally, you've got an announcement about uh, a lunar phases calendar. Right. So Astronomy Cast is a joint production of SIUE Universe Today and a little nonprofit that Fraser and I formed along with our friend uh, Phil Plate and a couple of other people. And we're trying to raise money for our nonprofit so we can keep doing cool things like this show in 365 days. And so one thing that we're going to do is a lunar phases data visualization contest. All the rules are up at astrosphere.org, and the winning poster design will get turned into a poster we sell in our store. Very cool. And so people can get the lunar phases organized. Yes. Awesome. All right, let's get on with the show then. So another two-parter coming at you. This week, we talk about the Italian astronomer Giovanni Domenico Cassini, best known for discovering Saturn's moons and the biggest division in, the, in Saturn's rings. Cassini made many other important discoveries in the solar system and in the fields of physics and astronomy. And next week, we'll talk about Cassini the mission. But let's get on with Cassini the man. He, he was an amazing, well, he was an amazing person. I won't say amazing man. This is someone who was working in the days when we were still trying to figure out where the heck we were in space. He grew up thinking that the Earth was the center of the universe and had to re-find his place in the universe as an adult. He grew up believing in astrology and as an adult became a hardcore science-focused astrophysicist in the earliest days of that field. Well, where would we where would we place him on the timeline of all of the famous astronomers? You know, the Galileo and the 
Copernicus and so he, he was he was after Galileo he was after Kepler and Brahe but they all kind of overlapped at various points in their life so he was born in 1625 and so he was growing up learning about all these things going on but he got to follow far enough behind them that he had much better optics to play with Right. I mean, Galileo was like one of the first people or the first person right. to ever point a telescope up. And so, you know, <laughs> he discovered everything <laughs> that was worth looking at with a telescope. But he saw them, the moons of Jupiter and Saturn's years. But but then Cassini and all these other people got their hands on on much better instruments and got to take the science a lot further. Right. And he, he got to be around for interesting things like the discovery of gravity, which he actually didn't believe in initially. And and I just love the concept what? of not believing, not in, believing gravity. in gravity. That's that's a that's a <laughs> that's easy to prove, you know. But but it was something where the whole idea of gravity being a force that kept the planets in orbit around the sun that was revolutionary. It forced you to change how you view the entire solar system, how you view the entire universe. To go from being a kid with a geocentric view of the universe and a belief in astrology to an adult who had to believe in a heliocentric with gravity. That, hmm. That's an amazing change to go through in your lifetime. And he was an early adopter. He, he was truly an early adopter, but he wasn't the first. He was the one who waited for his buddy who found all the bugs and then bought it after his buddy did. <laughs> right, of course. Yeah. Okay, so, so then why don't we sort of start with his early history then? Well, I guess the astrology side. It's it was just one of those things that I mean, when we're kids, we're all into strange stuff. Some people pick up all the frogs in their backyard. He picked up all the learning he could on astrology, and that's pretty much anyone really says about it. It's it's only after he went and he got a what was then an, an excellent Jesuit education that people really start looking at his life. And the thing that I just sort of look at and go, wow, things were different back then is he was a professor at the age of 25 and I didn't have my PhD yet. And um, Well, hey, not long after, Pamela. Well, it's still, I, I'm not full professor yet. And no. and here he, had your he was. PhD pretty quick though. Yeah, so so he got his PhD at age twenty five, and he had this interesting joint career where he he was working in Bologna, and he was both a fortress builder and an astronomer. And I love the juxtaposition of walls and sky. It, it's he was both grounded and had his head in the clouds. But the math is the key, right? It's all physics. It's all stress, strain, motions, kinematics. Yeah, yeah, and you could see it was a natural fit for him. So then how did he, you know, we loved astrology as a kid. How did he move into the astronomy side of it? Well, I think it was a matter that he just kept discovering amazing things with the observations he made. He worked with some of the craziest telescope configurations where he actually built a tower at Paris Observatory and would put lenses up at the top of the tower and then have the eyepiece, in some cases, handheld, in other cases, mounted separately. So can you imagine building an open-air telescope that is two non-connected pieces of glass? That's, that's, so he would hold the, a piece of glass and just sort of move it around and look at it? And line it up with the one up at the top of the tower. 
Right, but you could imagine that might have been the best, fastest way exactly. to get to get images, right? I mean, it was a it was a open frontier back then. So there's all kinds of different ideas people were trying out. That's neat. Just hear that kind of experimentation. You can imagine the connection with this fortress building experience, <laughs> right? Where where he's kind of like, oh, you know, we could easily buttress up that telescope over there and support it with that, and exactly. hold the eyepiece over here and, and get some images. Yeah, he he was definitely the the nuts and bolts kind of physics guy. I have to admit, this is the type of physics I like. Ian M, not so much my thing. I can do it. But the whole, okay, if you do this, you get this reaction. Nuts and bolts, gravity, kinematics, stress, strain. This is how you build a building that doesn't fall down. This is how you build a solar system that doesn't fall in on itself. He was that kind of a scientist. And... He made discoveries that was along those lines too, just very straightforward linear thinking. So in 1665, he was using his amazing telescopes to look at the planets because they're kind of the coolest thing to look at. And Mm. he was able to, by making out markings on the sides of the planets, for the first time, write down and determine their rotation rates. And so he was able to look out and go, wow, Jupiter... It's it's orbiting faster than we are. Oh, wow, look at Mars not orbiting. It's rotating faster than we are. He was able to look at Mars and accurately figure out, wow, it stays just a little bit more than 24 hours. And that's, that's really impressive. But, I mean, most people who are listening to this podcast recognize the name from the mission, right. which we'll get to next week. So he clearly made an impact in the research on Saturn. So he was someone who was out there determining moons. He was the person who discovered Iapetus, the little white and black, completely funky colored moon that kind of looks like it ran headfirst into something. He was the one who, while observing the Saturn's rings, realized, wait, there's a gap in those rings. And uh, that gap now bears his name. It's the Cassini Division. Right. And what is, the, what is that gap? It's, it's where there's a moon located and the moon shepherds the rings and clears out the gap. But he had no idea what, that's what he was looking at. No, it, it's taken us a long time and, well, it's taken the Mission Cassini to really help us understand those rings. Right. Okay. So he discovered what? He ended up discovering what? Four of them, right? Yep. Four, of, four of Saturn's moons, the the Cassini division. Right. And and um, he determined the rotation rate of Jupiter, which has features unlike Saturn, which is kind of beige. And I think one of the neatest things he did was he was a very careful observer and he was tied up in trying to understand how to measure time. He was tied up into trying to accurately measure longitude. And he followed the recommendations of Galileo in terms of realizing you can use Jupiter's moons to keep time, except while recognizing that, he realized, wait, there's this weird lag that keeps cropping up. So you're watching Jupiter, you're watching Jupiter, you know how long it takes its moons to orbit. You go away for a couple of weeks, you come back, and there's this either acceleration in when you see the moon complete an orbit, or a lag. It it can be many, many, many minutes, tens of minutes. And this was confusing, and it was actually one of his colleagues that figured out, wait, this is just the speed of light. So it was his observations that got us to the speed of light. Really? So, so 
Is it because the moon is further away or further away on its orbit? It, it's, so it's taking longer to get to us? It's, it's the whole system is moving further away. So if you look at Jupiter when it's at closest approach and you measure when Io passes directly in front of it. And then you wait a few weeks and you come back expecting to see that transit of, of Io in front of Jupiter again. Well, if Jupiter is now further away, that transit is going to lag behind when you expect to see it. And that lag is because Jupiter's now in a different place. Right, right, right. Okay, yeah. That's that's crazy. That's crazy. And and But they had no idea... I mean, did they interpret it correctly or did they interpret it? They interpret it correctly. And the reason they were able to make this light travel time discovery because of earlier work that Cassini had done with a Frenchman named Rishi. And... So, sorry to interject. Is that the is that the where the telescope name comes from? Those the Richie Christian? Yeah, I'm pretty sure that's it's it's they were all working on optics back then. They were all right. working to figure out the best telescopes. But in this case, poor Richie got stuck on a boat and he right. got sent far south. And the reason he did this, the reason they did this, was Cassini and Rishi both looked at Mars at the exact same time because they were working on determining accurate ways of measuring time with new clocks and watches. They looked at Mars at the exact same time, measured its location relative to the stars very accurately. But from different places on Earth. But from different places on Earth. Yeah. They knew their separation on the planets, and they know the distance between them. They could measure the angle that Mars moved on the sky, and this allowed them for the first time to accurately measure the distance to another planet. And using geometry and using Kepler's laws, once we knew where one planet was located, we could figure out where all the planets were located. I mean, that was one of the times when they finally understood the scale of the solar system. And so they were able to then go from, okay, I know exactly where Mars is, to, okay, I now know where Jupiter is. Okay, I now know how much the distance to Jupiter has changed between now and three weeks ago okay, I now know how much the predicted time of Io transiting in front of Jupiter has changed. I now know the speed of light. And that's just an amazing train of logic. Wow. And you, yeah. you can see in this how Cassini went from astrologer to astrophysicist in one lifetime. But is th that's a completely independent method of measuring the speed of light then i know they they did another experiment didn't they do an experiment where they were like on mountaintops and rotating mirrors and yeah that's the much more difficult way to do it where where basically you're you're trying to get the rotation right rates just right and the flashing just right so that it passes through things as they rotate and mm -hmm. it's very complicated and we'll link to it because that requires photos but that was a completely different method of independent of determining the speed of light. I wonder how accurate they were, how accurate uh, Cassini was. So, so we've got these, these really cool, you know, discovery or helping measure the speed of light, understanding the scale of the solar system, discovering the moons of Saturn. He also did zodiacal light. So in, in 1683, he was basically, he did what we've all done at some point. He stayed up all night, looked at the sky and went, huh. Why is it suddenly getting brighter in the direction opposite the sunrise? And, and he correctly figured out that there's just particulates out there. And that was sunlight shining off of stuff that wasn't in the shadow of the earth, but was behind the earth. 
So you can actually, as it's getting ready to be sunrise, you can see the sunlight in the opposite direction of sunrise, illuminating particles that are not quite on a straight line, but almost on a straight line from the sun to the earth and out to the space behind us. And that space behind us is just filled with stuff left over from comets, stuff left over from asteroid collisions, stuff that makes the zodiacal light that was interesting to Cassini and Brian May used to write his PhD. I, I have actually never seen it. Have you seen it? I've only seen it once. I, I saw it um, from Sutherland Observatory in South Africa. And it was surreal because the zodiacal light got to be as bright as the Milky Way. And that's just kind of creepy. Wow. So you need a really dark yeah. place to observe. And then when would you be able to see it? It's, it's brightest before the sun comes up. So wait before wow. astronomical twilight starts. Yeah. And that's an excellent time to take a look at it. And it's the opposite direction of sunrise. Now, he didn't stay in Italy the whole time, did he? He moved to France. Yeah, he ended up being director of the Paris Observatory. He was the astronomer for the Academy Royale de Sciences. He actually escaped being one of the Pope's minions because the Pope tried very hard to, to lure him down into the Vatican territory. But he just wanted to be a scientist. And what was amazing is the Paris Observatory actually sort of became a, a family legacy. He was the first director ever of the observatory, but then his son, his grandson, and his great-grandson all went on to run the observatory after him. And his poor great-grandson was director of the observatory when the French Revolution hit and got thrown in jail for many months for his ties to the royal house uh basically if you're the astronomer royale and it's the french revolution you're as as bad as anyone else but um while that was the end of the astronomical dynasty it's just neat to look back over cassini after cassini after cassini having this scientific legacy hmm. yeah there's uh there's a lot of those stories where you've got the father, and then you've got the the sister, you've got the, <laughs> right, and then the right. son. Uh, you wouldn't be talking about the Herschels now, would you? The Herschels, yeah, <laughs> yeah. So there's the Herschels, right, where it was like him and his sister, and then his son did some work with him as well. Right. The Struve you know. family had a couple of observatory directors across a couple of different continents. We just yeah. see this, and then there's husband and wife teams galore through astronomy. So then how long was he in, was he in working in Paris for then? Uh, he he ended up spending the entire latter half of his life there, and he actually stayed at the Paris Observatory even after his son took over. I think the sad part was in 1711, he, he went blind, and it was another year before he actually passed away at a fairly old age. But still, to be an optical astronomer in a day mm. when you could only observe with your eyeballs, and to go blind, that was pretty bad but he left a really good legacy behind him so it was still like a hundred years before any photographic yeah observing was done right yeah. yeah so he he was essentially there from 1669 onwards and uh he he became a french citizen and what's neat is that poor imprisoned great-grandson actually had the french version of his name and and so his his great grandson was Jean Dominique instead of Giovanni Domenico. Right, right. 
but still Cassini. Exactly. Cool. So actually, there's one there's one thing I think that you you didn't touch on yet, which was that he did a lot of work with Jupiter's Red Spot, right? Right. So he, along with Hook, were the co-discoverers of the Red Spot, and they were able to determine this is a lasting structure. This is something that is tied to the rotation rate of Jupiter. And it was part of how they started to realize the different rotation of the bands on Jupiter. So it was through his careful observation, his high-quality optics for the time, that they were able to start realizing that it wasn't just the planets weren't on perfect circles. The planets themselves have ever-changing surfaces. So this was more of that revolution in how we view our solar system. But again, I mean, did they have any inkling about what it was that they were looking at? I mean, it was a blotch on the surface of the planet that helped determine the rotation rate, but did they really kind of know what they were dealing with? We we really didn't know what Jupiter's red spot was until we sent the Pioneer and Voyager missions out. It was just this weird artifact on the surface. I, I think the place where he was able to start making wild guesses was he was also one of the first ones to look at Mars and see its polar caps. So there you see the ice forming and going away and forming and going away. And you can sort of start to guess what that is. But Jupiter's spot, how you get from being a European to understanding it's a giant hurricane back in days without <laughs> yeah. satellites. I mean, it, could they even imagine what a hurricane looked like from above? Yeah, I don't know. That You're right. But it's also just a, you know, a testimony to how long that storm has been raging on yeah. the surface of, of Jupiter. I mean, the fact that they made those observations in the, what, the late 1600s? Right. And here we are four centuries later and, you know, it's still going. <laughs> it's still, still going. So yeah. he, he just watched everything change in terms of our conceptual understanding. And he also is responsible for making France smaller than any war ever made it larger. And it was simply through science that he shrunk France. Uh, you're going to have to explain that one. <laughs> so he was a mapper. He, he was one of the first ones to understand how to accurately measure longitude. And so in mapping France and determining accurately where its borders were, he inadvertently shrunk the country. It, it Prior maps had France much bigger than his map that was, was determined using triangulation. That's the kind of geography mistake that gets your head chopped off. He actually apparently was able to make the king laugh, and the king joked that he'd shrunk the country more than any prior war. And then killed him? No, no. He, no. Was, he was able to live to a ripe old age. But it, nonetheless, what, what was interesting is it was his sons who carried on the mapping as well and went on to map other countries and his grandsons and great-grandsons. So he created not just an astronomical dynasty, and I mean that in the literal, not the figurative sense, but he also created a map-making geographer dynasty as well. That's really cool. All right. Well, that's great, Pamela. Thanks a lot. I really appreciate it. And we're going to continue on with next week's episode where we actually talk about the cool mission. That that sounds great. And we might sneak in a little bit of Huygens as well. Oh, that'd be cool. Maybe make this a three-parter? A three-parter, yeah. That's a good idea. Or a four-parter. Four? Because four? there's so oh, much that right. Huygens did with Titan, right? So, you so got, Cassini, Cassini, ooh. Huygens, Huygens. We may have a plan. That sounds good. All right. We'll talk to you next week, Pamela. Okay. Sounds great, Fraser. 
This has been Astronomy Cast, a weekly facts-based journey through the cosmos. Show notes and transcripts for every episode are available on our website. Check it out at astronomycast.com. You can send us any comments, questions, or feedback to info at astronomycast.com. We read every email. The show is a nonprofit educational resource provided by Fraser Kane and Dr. Pamela Gay. We're supported through the kind donations of listeners like you. If you enjoy Astronomy Cast, why not give us a donation? It helps us pay for bandwidth, transcripts, and show notes. Just click the donate link on the website. All donations are tax deductible for U.S. taxpayers. You can support the show for free, too. Write a review or recommend it to your friends. Every little bit helps. Click support the show on our website to see some suggestions. To subscribe to the show, point your podcatching software at astronomycast.com slash podcast.xml or subscribe directly from iTunes. Music is provided by Travis Searle. The show was edited by Preston Gibson. Astronomy Cast is produced at Southern Illinois University, Edwardsville, with generous support from Universe Today. love an extra $100 in your pocket? Have a TurboTax expert file your taxes for you by March 31st to get $100 back instantly. Because no matter what moves you made last year, TurboTax makes them count. That means getting $100 back and 100% accurate taxes only from Intuit TurboTax. Must file by 331. Credit only applicable to federal filing fees with TurboTax full service. Offer can be modified or terminated at any time. 